Welcome to Maps and Meta-Analysis. Looking at California cities. Hi, I'm Darvesh Gorhit. And I'm Justin Hurst. And this is Facts and Folsom. A Meta-Analysis. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to a special episode of Facts and Folsom. Um, I'm McLean, and I'm joined today, today by my co-hosts, Darvesh and Justin. And today we're going to be diving in uh, deep on a topic that's recently come up in some of the city council meetings. This is the structural deficit in the Folsom City's budget. Um, we've got a lot to cover today. Um, we've prepared a lot of research in advance. Um, we're definitely really excited to get started. So um, how about we uh, start with a really just good leading question. Um, what is the structural deficit? W what does that mean? And what does it currently look like for Folsom? Uh, is that to... I Either one of us or just yeah yeah I, I, either one whoever wants to jump in on that yeah so I, I guess for people who have been uh following the podcast um we've talked about it a couple times but for those you know whose first time this is um basically um the city of Folsom is spending uh more than it's taking in in terms of revenue and this mm -hmm. is dipping into something called the unassigned fund balance and that unassigned fund balance is basically uh kind of like a rainy day fund uh the idea being that uh, a city kind of saves up some of its excess revenues over the years. And when there's a kind of an unforeseen circumstance like the 2008 financial crisis or COVID, um, that money from the unassigned fund balance can be used to, uh, you know, pay uh, like government officials, uh, keep, you know, services running, um, you know, pay uh, different contracts or contractors, uh, you know, whatever projects are sort of ongoing. So the idea being that you, you keep sort of a, a set of reserves to smooth out the process during uh, times of like recession or, or hardship. But the way that Folsom's budget is currently structured, uh, it seems like all of our kind of critical ongoing expenses are actually more than the uh, kind of just revenue that we're taking in. So we're going to essentially eat into this uh, unassigned fund balance or like rainy day fund. And it's projected to be, you know, pretty close to zero in maybe like three or four years. So it's, it's, it's a pretty big topic of, um, discussion it was actually discussed in the most recent city council meeting as well and it's been discussed you know pretty much every city council meeting uh for the past few so we thought we'd go and take a deep dive uh, i don't know justin is there anything you want to add yeah i'll just add that um as darvis mentioned um and as we've covered on the podcast before um the city manager um is uh, responsible for proposing the budget to the city council who then votes on it but um for the next five years um that's what's going to be eating up that assigned fund balance but the big thing um and one of the things that we're also going to discuss in the podcast today is that's really only a short-term solution um once you get past those five-year periods or maybe even a six-year depending on how the specific sales tax and um, property tax revenues work out um the city's going to run out of unassigned fund balance without a change so um, then that brings into a, a lot of implications for, well, what does that mean for the city? How is it going to be able to like get rid of this deficit because we can't functionally just be losing money like the city's going to have to balance its budget? Um, so there's a lot that will go into that. A lot of things we'll consider. And hopefully um, we'll find this compelling, um, all the research that we've done and talking about possible routes for the city of Folsom. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, no. So like they'd mentioned, um, at the end of the fiscal year of 2022 to 2023, the city ended with a deficit of $596,767. Um, the thing that makes this a concerning topic and or definitely a pressing topic, at least for the city council and the city manager, is that this deficit is expected to increase each year. So it's not you know expected to be 
consistent, you know, roughly $600,000 deficit every year. I think in a few years, uh, I believe three to four years, they were expecting $4.6 million to be the uh, deficit. And so currently, um, and this is uh, according to the latest, I think it was the the latest budget that they were, that they had passed, the current unassigned and unreserved general fund balance is, you know, in between, it's about $22.43 million. And so while, you know, $600,000 eats into that a little bit one year, as that, you know, that gap kind of grows and grows and grows, it only gets worse over time. And so it's definitely pressing that the the council, you know, um, find a solution on this now. So a um, little bit of context. Um, yeah, so we can we can kind of dive into, I think, a, a, a good question when, you know, kind of approaching this topic is, you know, to understand, look at the past, like, has something like this happened in the past? And so we actually, we did some research on like the Folsom City's uh, budget proposals, um, looked at all the years that they had recorded history for on their website, um, which starting in 2009, there was a 2006 and then it was 2006 or 2007, I forget which year, but it, it jumps then to 2009. And right from the get go, uh, the only like comparable event that we can kind of see this sort of deficit take place in was during the subprime mortgage crisis um, that started in 2008. Um, obviously, that doesn't paint like a really warm and fuzzy picture, um, you know, looking at the economic yeah. you know, outlook of the city. Obviously, conditions are very, very different economically now than they were then different inputs and other factors um but it's it's important that we understand some you know the history and the context um while approaching this topic just to see if there's anything we could have learned from the past um with that being said though yeah like it, it, very different um economic environments um the, the housing market hasn't really collapsed in the same way and the credit environment is much more stable than it was back then so there's i feel like there's more the city has to play with now than back then it was just you know uh very 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 turbulent all around um i'm curious though real quick you know we've been drawing too many i've been drawing a lot of parallels um between 2008 and now wanted to ask you know kind of like how we ended up in this position i think we can all you know take some guess but um darvish really curious um if you'd be able to you know, kind of answer that question. Like, how did we get here? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, one kind of, uh, I guess, I, I don't want to say glaring thing, but but a, a trend that has been uh, kind of in the works for a while and that uh, doesn't really seem to correlate with any kind of obvious event is the flattening of sales tax revenue. Um, and so mm -hmm. for the video listener or for the video watchers, um, you know, we'll put some infographics whenever uh, people are referring to certain figures. So you can kind of see and, and kind of watch along. But um, for audio listeners, I'll try to describe as, as best as possible what's going on. Um, but, you know, in the kind of notes, we'll, we'll kind of link to the doc that we use to uh, organize our thoughts and you can take a look for yourself. Um, but basically, uh, in the 2016-2017 fiscal year, uh, there was a very, uh, there was kind of a split between the increase in sales tax revenue and the increase in property tax revenue, which are the two major sources of revenue for a city. So essentially the, um, you know, uh, the state of California and uh, in our case, like levies uh, property tax, uh, some fraction of that property tax goes to the uh, city. Uh, I think cities can levy like kind of additional percentages here and there. So there's kind of like a base rate and then uh, whatever the city sets on top and the county and so forth. Um, and a similar thing can be can happen for uh, sales tax. So there, there's kind of a base sales tax rate for the um, for the state as a whole. And then cities can kind of add on top of that. So if you've ever gone to like 
the Bay Area or Los Angeles or something like that, you've probably seen that the sales tax is sometimes higher, you know, sometimes as high as like 10.5%. Um, but I think the uh, the sales tax rate for the state as a whole is around like 7.75, something like that. Um, so yeah, basically that's the two kind of major sources of revenue. Uh, there are other sources of revenue like grants and things like that. Uh, but these are the two that are closely tracked in a lot of the budget discussions and are, you know, prominently highlighted by the uh, CFO and the city manager during their presentations. And basically what happened in 2016, 2017, that fiscal year, uh, the sales tax continued to grow, but it grew at a much, much slower pace, whereas housing continued on a pretty much linear, maybe slightly exponential uh, rate. And so this decoupling has basically uh, created a shortfall in terms of revenue or expected revenue, I should say. You know, essentially, if you would extrapolated before 2016, um, you know, you would have expected both lines to kind of continue growing up. Uh, and so any sort of like budget attachments that you uh, better budget allocations that you've made, you know, would sort of account for there being that much revenue. So if you're doing any sort of like infrastructure projects or uh, any sort of like development or, you know, the Folsom plan area, you're, you know, kind of in the back of your mind, like counting on that revenue to some extent, because these things take a, a very long time to plan out. Um, so that, that's kind of the main thing. Um, so, and then basically beyond that, uh, I, I tried to find a bunch of uh, kind of corresponding evidence to uh, support that fact, which I'll talk about much uh, kind of later in the episode. Um, but I wanted to um, kind of pull out some some other small details. I don't think any of these details by themselves is like a, uh, you know, like a, a smoking gun or like a, a silver bullet to these problems, but just stuff that I found interesting from uh, the kind of various uh, budget discussions and uh, kind of completed budgets. And so, excuse me, basically in the 2022-2023 uh, uh, fiscal year budget, which is like the most recent budget that was passed, uh, th there's kind of an interesting line that stuck out to me that could suggest uh, at least a portion of where this deficit is coming from. So I'll just read the quote. Uh, basically, they say, in addition, the CalPERS investment fund uh, performance over the past several years has been mixed. Because the balance of funding is provided by the employer contributions, when returns decline, employer contributions go up. This will mean annual increases of about $1 million to our general fund contribution throughout fiscal year 2022-2023, likely continuing with a similar, similar trend into the future. And so uh, this was interesting because of that line, uh, the balance of funding is provided by uh, employer contributions, and when returns decline, employer contributions go up. So essentially what it's saying is like, uh, you know, whatever pensions are essentially promised to people, if the uh, investments that CalPERS makes uh, can't do it, then essentially the current uh, employers and, you know, whatever employees they have, but they essentially have to kind of pay up the difference. And so uh, this this could be potentially one reason. Uh, I know, like, I actually don't know about the CalPERS uh, performance overall, but it could suggest that, you know, maybe if things are correlated with like a recessionary environment, that would mean uh, that, you know, whatever things that CalPERS has invested in have gone down. And so correspondingly, that burden is sort of passed to everyone down the chain. And $1 million is, is not an insignificant amount. It's definitely more than the deficit was, um, you know, this year. Uh, but, you know, that, that represents a little under 1% of the uh, total uh, budget size. And if it's projected to kind of increase in the future, then that's kind of an issue. Um, definitely. No, that's, that's pretty significant. I mean, one quick question. Um, mm -hmm. Do we know, like, what CalPERS invests in? Is it like, you know, a mix of stocks, bonds, treasury, you know, bonds, stuff like that? Yeah, I I believe all of their investment information is uh, public. So I, I don't have the information off the top of my head. Um, 
Uh, but yeah, I, I think more or less, uh, you're right. Basically, they invest in uh, stocks and bonds. They, I think, tend to get some preferential treatment from uh, different asset managers, because I think the idea is that, you know, if you're someone like Vanguard or or BlackRock or something like that, you can essentially, you know, because you're managing such a large pool of money that it's like, you know, you're effectively working for one customer with a large um, allocation rather than a bunch of customers with sort of smaller allocations. Um, so, you know, I think they give them like pre preferred like management fees and, and things like that. Um, I also know that there are some things that essentially like public investors don't typically, or I should say like retail investors don't typically have access to. So these could be things like private equity or venture capital. Um, ironically, the state of California doesn't invest a ton of its fund in venture capital, as far as I know, uh, but it's sort of understandably so. It's like very correlated with recessionary environment. Um, oh, uh, Justin has pointed out to me that the uh, portfolio invests in stocks, bonds, real estate, private equity, inflation-linked assets, and other public and private investment vehicles. Very diverse portfolio. Yeah. So yeah, another private one might be like a REIT, like a real estate, uh, yeah, real estate investment trust. So basically, you pool a bunch of properties under like one kind of fund, and then the the rents and proceeds you collect from that kind of go to, to pay dividends to shareholders, things like that. Um, so yeah, that, that was one interesting point I found. And then pretty much everything else was a, a mixed bag, um, but because the proportion of spend has stayed roughly the same over the years. Um, the only kind of notable change I could find was that uh, the pay, the percentage of pay that firefighters uh, get out of the budget uh, went from 21 to 25%. And, you know, that's only like a 4% change, but since they already made up kind of like, you know, a fifth to a quarter of the budget on an absolute dollar amount, that's quite a lot. That's, you know, what it would amount to now to like roughly $4 million plus. And Darvish, does that include the unpaid overtime? That's been an issue we've heard about. Uh, no, I, I couldn't really separate the... Um, the overtime from the uh, actual like base salaries. So I, I think that because mm -hmm. the budget just essentially shows whatever is allocated ahead of time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, unfortunately we don't get a, a good look into, you know, how many overtime hours are being worked, how they're being compensated, uh, if they're being delayed at all, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And for, for the listeners, uh, the fire budget in 22, 23 or the, yeah, in the general fund budget, was a twenty three point nine five percent, second only to the police budget, which was twenty six point oh four percent. So, like those two alone make up, I mean, basically half of the city's budget. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, and yeah, I guess the only other note I'll kind of make on that is that I think uh, perhaps a difficulty, and this sort of relates to the uh, wait financial crisis as well. Is that a lot of these services, and not just police and firefighters, but those are maybe the, the most notable and kind of uh, highest net dollar amount examples. Um, these services are very easy to ratchet up, but not to ratchet down. So, you know, for example, it's it's not the same as like, um, you know, you uh, hire like a librarian or like, you know, a librarian works like one extra hour or like two extra hours in a day, and then they just get paid like a little bit more or like the hours get cut, but like the same days are sort of open. Um, you know, police, police officers and firefighters, there's a lot of upfront cost in terms of like, um, you know, facilities, uh, vehicles, you know, that they need to ride along in, uh, which shifts they're covering, you know, any sort of training that they need to go through. So th there's a huge uh, kind of, it's not really, I mean, I guess it's like a human capital uh, investment, right? You're, you're really investing in these people uh, to give them like the appropriate skills and resources that they need to do their job. And so I, I think understandably, it's kind of hard to ratchet these things down. Um, and these don't 
seem to be, I, I, I want to be careful when I say this. It doesn't seem like whenever uh, the budget of the fire department or the police department has come up, the the kind of expenditures don't really seem to be a problem as far as the priorities that the council sets and that the citizens, you know, rightfully um, kind of voice. So uh, we even heard like the last city council meeting, you know, people uh, talking about a lack of, of policing and things like that. So this is definitely not some uh, kind of opaque or esoteric thing that the council is doing. They're, they're very much listening to their constituents. Um, but yeah, unfortunately it is one of those things where there's like pensions involved, there's unions. And so to you can't just like one year hire a police officer and like the next year fire them. So I think that's what makes a lot of this discussion very sticky is there's certain, certain services that have ratcheted up and now the pool of things that you can cut from is a bit smaller. Right. Yeah. No. And, and, uh, and, and that makes sense, you know, um, and it definitely is a, it's a tricky, it's a tr tricky topic to handle, you know, um, because of the, like the necessity of those services, you know, and like the value mm -hmm. that they provide to the community. Um, they're, I mean, they're, you know, completely, they're completely necessary. Um, but definitely, yeah, like what proportion of the budget and how much, obviously that's, that's a bit more nuanced to talk through. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious what you both think. I'm going to open the floor up to Justin as well, just so we can get some some thoughts. And if there, anyone had found anything on the effects of COVID on the city's budget, because it seems like it seems mm -hmm. like the structural deficit is coming right off of the heels of the pandemic. Do we do we did we find any correlation between the pandemic expenses um, and, and the disruption that the pandemic caused and this budget deficit? Uh, I mean, the only two things I can comment on for that is we, we definitely saw the unassigned fund balance being drawn down, um, but it recovered actually quite quickly, much quicker than the um, uh, in 2008. So, um, yeah, I think in your research, McLean, you, you essentially found that like the uh, the unassigned fund balance didn't start increasing until 2012. So a full four years after the uh, actual crisis had, I mean, the crisis didn't really abate, but, you know, the, the kind of acute shock of it uh, had abated. Uh, whereas in this case, I think the unassigned fund balance started to increase almost the year after, exactly the year after. Um, let me double check that actually. In our, in our yeah, it, it dropped oh. from 2019 to 2020. It dropped 6% almost, mm -hmm. right, year over year. And then it rose basically 7% from 2020 to 2021. So with the exception of 2020, it almost looks like just like it, you know, dipped real quick and then continued rising at the same rate that it had. Yeah, so I think I think that's the there's a parallel in some ways in that the year that there was an acute shock, the balance was drawn down. Also, I, I think part of what um, perhaps helped or changed this outcome was that um, I know there was at least one grant from the federal government. I believe it was the APRA grant uh, that essentially provided a a very generous amount of money to cities to kind of use however they saw fit to cover. Uh, kind of basic goods and services that their residents needed. Um, I think the leftover amount from this past fiscal year was something like $4 million. So I don't even know how much was spent um, before that. So that th th those are maybe two factors of why we see this kind of like sharp drop and then sharp increase again. Okay. No, that's, that's, that's good to know. Cause I think most people's intuition, you know, would, would take them there like, mm -hmm. oh, this is a COVID related thing. But you know, what we're saying is that while obviously not, you know, inconsequential COVID might not be the biggest or the only contributing factor to, you know, the structural deficit that we're seeing, um, you know, and I think that's, that's, that's definitely really good to know. Um, 
want to kind of talk a little bit about um, Dervish. I, did you actually did you have any more uh, like points to go through on this one? Yeah, really. I'll, I'll kind of go through the the okay. next two points rather quickly. Um, but I, I was trying to look for evidence of not evidence, but like uh, rhetoric of how Folsom thinks about this situation. And so basically, they they published this very detailed plan, um, and they try to highlight some trends in each of these plans to decide how they're going to plan for the future. Um, and uh, essentially, I, I found an interesting contrast between the way they thought about the future of housing versus the way they thought about the future of uh, retail. And I think it could perhaps point to uh, how, you know, why why the approach has been kind of different in each circumstance. So I'll, I'll try to read uh, a little bit of each. I, I'll, I'll try to shorten it wherever I can, but these are kind of long quotes. Um, so basically in, in trend number one, in the most recent uh, kind of plan, which I think was only updated in 2018, but but it's nice because it kind of gives a forward-looking statement of how they thought about this before COVID. Um, they say trend number one, uh, uh, the changing nature of the American household. Uh, the nuclear family has been on the decline for decades, and the traditional family, mom, dad, and two kids, is now a minority. During the significant growth period for American suburbs in the 1970s, the nuclear family made up 40% of new households, whereas today it accounts for less than 20% of new households. Um, they cite some more statistics, uh, and then they say uh, what this could mean for Folsom. How does Folsom address this shift? Uh, do we continue to plan and build for a shrinking segment of the housing market, single-family homes, or encouraging encourage new housing types in the city? At any rate, new housing types should respect the local character and building uh, intensities. And so I thought this was pretty interesting because they they clearly see the changing housing landscape as existential for the city. Uh, and so kind of in contrast, uh, trend number six uh, was called uh, shifting retail preferences. And the quote, I'm going to quote some of it for you. Uh, with the growth of online shopping, websites like Amazon.com often provide consumers with lower prices than brick and mortar retailers. Increasingly, shoppers are completing their purchases on their smartphones. Uh, online retailers will compete strongly against uh, brick and mortar retailers that rely on convenience pur purchases or having the lowest prices. Uh, consumers cannot stroll, window shop, meet friends for lunch, or try out, try clothes online, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then what this could mean for Folsom. Folsom has a strong and growing retail economy that is responding to the changing retail landscape. The Palladio is an excellent example of a shopping center that creates an excellent shopping experience that cannot be replicated online. Uh, shopping centers that do not offer that experience may have to retrofit their facilities or otherwise change to woo consumers away from their laptops and smartphones. And so what I felt like was um, kind of interesting about that is that they almost say like, hey, like there's online retailers, but you know, it's okay. Like, you know, we, we have great shopping experiences. Look at Palladio. Like I'm sure they'll, they'll do fine. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I thought the tone was kind of interesting that they almost see it as like, uh, well, you know, you could never... Uh, Online could never beat Palladio, so we don't really have to kind of worry about these. I mean, obviously, I'm like being a bit facetious there, but I I think the tone was was very self evident. Yeah, no that 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 is fascinating, especially like given the rise of online shopping and like Amazon's like you know huge growth um in the last like two decades. It's interesting mm -hmm. that like the position or the tone might still be like yeah, like you know we're we're still like bullish on brick and mortar um you know despite the rise of online shopping um. Do you, I mean, this is a, I'm going to ask an opinion question, level question, because I think this is like interesting and hard to research. Do you think that is a miscalculation in your opinion? Do you think that like online shopping might be more important than it's being given credit for? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think, I mean, I think there is a point that they're making 
which is a very salient one, which is that uh, there's some retail experiences that are just better, or I should say there's some consumer spending experiences that are either only possible in person or better in person. Um, so I'm kind of thinking of um, like recreation. So like something like Sunsplash or maybe like a Top Golf or something like that. That's like, there's no world in which, I mean, I don't know, unless like VR headsets get like really good. Yeah, unless the metaverse gets, you know, super crazy. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I've seen some like crazy like gloves and things like that. So I don't know, maybe like 20 years from now or something like that. But, you know, for now, as far as like what draws people in and, you know, there's kind of a sense of community around it, uh, especially when you go to things together. Like shopping can be a very, it's, it seems like a mostly solitary experience. Um, and I, I think the point about Palladio is a good one in that uh, because there's a movie theater, there's kind of like stuff around it. So, you know, it's like, oh, you get dinner and then you go to the movie and then, okay, maybe you get like ice cream or something nearby. Um, or, you know, you just like hang out with friends and kind of like lounge around nearby. So yeah, there was kind of a point to that, but yeah, it, it felt like the city was quite facetious given the fact that uh, this budget, oh, this Folsom general plan was adopted in August 28th, 2018 and amended in August 24th, 2021. So this is like well after the flattening of the sales tax. This has gone on for a two a full two fiscal years in a non-recessionary environment. So it kind of begs the question of like, okay, why why the sort of lackadaisical attitude? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely good. I pretty appreciate that. Um, well, I kind of wanted to talk now a little bit about, you know, kind of where, where all this is headed. Um, Darvish, fantastic context on, you know, kind of some of the, how we got here. Um, amazing analysis. I, I know, Justin, you had spent a considerable amount of time uh, looking at like what's ahead and where are we going? Do you want to talk to that a little bit? Yeah, um, I'm happy to. Um, so just to couch in a little bit of the context that Darvish mentioned earlier, um, the short term strategy that the city has basically endorsed with the adoption of this budget as presented by the city manager has been to draw down that unassigned fund balance in the next few years for the short term. But that's only a short-term solution. So after those five years, once that unassigned fund balance is effectively zero, what is the city going to do? Well, I mean, when you're dealing with the black and white, like here's my income, here's my expenditures, there's really two routes to go there. It's like either increase your income or reduce your expenditures. So um, a lot of this is more political consideration because we don't necessarily know who the city council is going to be or what the financial situation is going to exactly look like in that time. Um, I think it's fair to make a judgment based on the history of Folsom, what it seems like the city council values across the board, um, as I think it might be likely that future city council members also share some of those values. So um, I'm going to start with the cut side of things because I feel like um, while there maybe is an aspiration to increase revenue um, through a couple of different ways, I think understanding what the cuts would be would also be important to even understand why increasing the income could be something that's desirable. Um, so as I see it, um, what Folsom undercuts would look like um, would probably be a reduction in service levels. Um, so that could be manifesting in a couple different ways. You could see across the board cuts um, where um, instead of just picking one facet of Folsom or the one department, the, the city council and city manager decide to just reduce spending across the board. Um, for reference, the current cost of service level increases just for this fiscal year um, as presented in this fiscal budget. Um, was about $4 million, um, which is, you know, a lot of money. Um, much of it was driven by keeping up with inflation, increasing service costs, um, increasing wages, that sort of thing. 
um, and a lot of the increasing services for the developing Folsom Plan area. Um, like, for example, um, McLean mentioned earlier that uh, fire department is um, almost a quarter of the budget. They're getting a whole new station here in the Folsom Plan area. They just broke ground on that, Station 34. Um, that could um, also mean that the city council decides to kind of halt the growth of the services in the Folsom Plan area. Um, that's one specific way that they could target it, or they could distribute it more evenly throughout the entire city. Um, I feel like it would be more likely that they would kind of pull existing resources from the city to the Folsom Plan area, because if you have one area that's not really covered by existing city services, when you're trying to attract growth and increase, um, you know, housing prices in the area, that's not going to be advantageous for the city. Um, so it, for someone like me who does live in the Folsom Plan area, I feel like I won't feel uh, such a change as much as people who live in other parts of Folsom, um, if that were to be the case. Um, there's also the possibility that the city council does do a targeted service reduction. So um, what this could mean is that they pick one or two specific areas of the budget to pull from. Um, one thing that we did see um, happen in the budget discussion during that city council meeting um, where they did talk about the budget was that they decided to um, take the city manager's recommended budget and there was an IT fund that was recommended to be created and the city council decided, no, we need that money for something else. So they just completely eliminated the creation of that fund. Um, that is going to be piecemeal here and there. I don't really feel like the city council is going to be able to get a lot of mileage out of that sort of thing. So um, especially if it's a systemic structured issue, like it seems like this is, um, they're going to have to go for like some of the bigger pieces of the pie, the, the departments, the parks and rec. Um, I think that given that the fire department and the police department are such big portions of the budget, that is a possibility for the city to meet the resource gap. That being said, it seems very politically infeasible. No one likes pulling money away from firefighters. The city of Folsom is very pro-police. We've seen that in, in city council meetings, even when they're saying we need these positions, even if the chief of police doesn't think it's an emergency. Um, I don't see that changing in the next few years, um, barring extenuating circumstances. So I don't really think that would be viable. Um, I think what would happen is probably um, staffing at some of the city administrative departments will be cut, um, especially because staffing, especially, um, sorry, I'm saying especially at, um, with those CalPERS increases uh, at the state level, um, when you're getting rid of a staff position, you're not just getting rid of that base salary, you're getting rid of all the benefits you're paying too. So I think the city might see that as a big bang for the buck, even if it means like the existing resources and the existing staffers are more stretched thin doing things like the trash, doing things like parks and rec, um, all of the other services you can imagine in the city. Um, so that's the not fun part, which um, I think needs to be articulated well if the city is interested in increasing revenues, because if it is interested in increasing revenues, that's gonna have to happen largely through a tax proposed to the voters. Um, the one that has been talked about, and we've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast because it's been brought up in city council, is a sales tax hike. Um, this is something that can put us more towards the growth trend that we were expecting to be on um, until 2016. Um, the number that has been floating around is a 0.5% tax hike, which would definitely put us back on the right track. Um, that would have to be put on the, the ballot by the city council after a vote. Um, which I would imagine um, if they do decide to go the increased revenue route, they would probably vote for it almost unanimously. Um, I don't know how politically viable that is, though, because if we're looking at the past, um, this is not a new thing. Folsom actually had a vote on a very similar price increase. I think it was also 0.5% in the last six years. And um, the, the margin for the vote was 
not great for the city. I think it was something like 70%, um, it's somewhere in our notes. Um, but it was, it was a by and large people rejected it. Um, so to, I, to be clear, yeah. uh, Justin, sorry to cut you off. That's something no the, the citizens of Bolsom vote on that yes. sales tax increase. Okay. Does yes. that like, does that kind of vote come in its own special type of vote or is it packaged in with like a larger voting, you know, package? So it would, I think the city does have the capacity to do a special election. That being said, I'm not familiar with the city constitution or the bylaws. Um, my guess is they would do it during an election year, um, especially since they happen every two years. Um, so it probably would just be another thing on the ballot. Like when you go to the local section um, underneath the state propositions, um, you're going to see like, oh, do you want to vote yes for increasing the sales tax in Folsom? Um, gotcha. I'm pretty sure that's how it manifested last time. Yeah, and I could see, I can definitely see that not being widely popular, especially like given the rise of inflation, then the mm -hmm. extreme uh, like cost of living increases. So yeah. definitely, sorry to sorry to cut you off. Feel free to no, continue. no, you're good. Um, I think the one saving grace that is like a beacon of hope, perhaps for the city council, is the demographics are changing. Um, we have a lot of new people moving in from the bay who probably are more used to those increased sales tax fees. Um, so it could increase the percentage of the voter bait that's like amenable to that kind of thing. Um, or, and you also have potentially some people moving out of the city because, um, you know, there's a flight from California to other states that are cheaper. Um, so if the city council is able to articulate in an effective way, hey, here's what this sales tax increase will do for you. And here's what happens if we don't pass it. It's possible. Um, and it's hard to say, like, depending on how it all works out. I know one thing that we've also covered on the podcast is the um, economic development um, consultant that they're hiring for the city. Um like also is a political avenue to say, well, I mean, if the expert's going to come in and say, hey, you, we can't really help you with the city revenue unless you increase the sales tax, that might also help because I don't think they had that last time. Right. That's a that's a very mm -hmm. good a good point. Um, mm -hmm. by politically speaking, because I was going to ask, like, who would ever vote in favor of a sales tax increase? Like, I'm gonna be honest, like, you know, my like base lizard brain would never go for a sales tax increase because you know it's money out of my pocket, right? Um, so I think that's 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 actually a really good strategy, and it's important that there are strategies that like the city can take if they, especially because it does, you know, considering the data that we're seeing, it really does seem like the obvious choice to make is, you know, what, yes, we should make this, you know, uh, fifty percent or excuse me, point five percent, right? Yes, uh, mm -hmm. sales tax increase. So, yeah, no, good, good point. Yeah, that's interesting. I also wonder if. Um... I mean, as the podcast gets bigger, I would love to do polls from residents mm -hmm. because, for example, I think it would be interesting to get people's opinion on, you know, would you be in favor of a 0.5% increase if all that money went to, you know, X? Mm -hmm. right? So so maybe some people would be um, okay with it if, if it went to exclusively police and firefighters. If you just said that, like, hey, we'll essentially, like, allocate all of this money to whatever the existing budget is and and that's the only place it can be kind of allocated to mm -hmm. then kind of the remaining money can just be allocated elsewhere probably like you, you could just shuffle things around and that yeah. might kind of mitigate some of the negativity around it i mean is is that a possibility i mean i guess to what extent can you explain yourself in these like proposition ballots so um at least when I get my my ballot, I usually get one of those little voter guide booklets with it. And in the oh, voter yeah. guide booklet, like there can be the pros and cons side. Yeah. Um, with regards to the specific language, I'm pretty sure that has to pass through a lawyer yeah. to make sure that's not biased. So 
um, if there's a very like nonpartisan way to say, hey, here's what it would mean mm-hmm. um, without committing future city council members to a specific course of action. Because again, it's entirely possible. Like if you say on the ballot, like, oh, um, if you want to keep the same level of police department, um, you need to vote for this tax hike. And then the city council that comes in with that same election is so pro-police, even if it fails, they're going to keep the same level. Then mm-hmm. you're kind of lying on the ballot. So right. there, there, there's a gray area there where I feel like it has to be more on the marketing side mm-hmm. to be able to talk about what that tax will mean than it necessarily will be in the ballot language itself. Gotcha. So it has to be like non-committal to the extent that, um, yeah, I, I guess to the extent that it should be, legally yeah. speaking. Yeah. And there's a, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I can't tell you the, gotcha. the lines on that one, but yeah. yeah. But I mean, generally, I, I find those ballot booklets like quite fair in general. Um, mm-hmm. I... I guess to my chagrin, not as many people read them as I would like to, but you know that's mm-hmm. neither here nor there. And that, that's a whole other issue we can get into, like yeah, the marketing true. of elections and like how informed the average voter is. But, but um, that's yeah. beyond the scope of this podcast. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe maybe for yeah. a future episode or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it, is there anything else uh, that you found in your in your research? Yeah, I mean, it's um we kind of alluded to before, um, but the other big um, source of revenue for the city is property taxes. And um, that's something that's a lot more complicated than sales tax, which is probably why the city's not going down that route. Plus, like, kind of gonna, not going to bury the lead here. It's going to be super unpopular if anyone tries to increase your property taxes, especially when you're like buying these like million dollar properties that are existing in Folsom. Like, any slight percent increase will be huge um, to your bottom line. Um, that being said, even with a small local rate increase, um, I calculated that. Um, like the median home like price in Folsom, um, according to realtor.com, is about $780,000 um, as of July 2023. Um, there's about 28,000 um, housing units, um, with most of them being built um, around 1995, according to the Point Two Homes website. Um, so if we went with a like much lower purchase price, um, like say $400,000 to account for people who already have houses that they bought way back when, when it was cheaper, um, even a 0.5% increase on property taxes would get somewhere in the ballpark of $56 million a year for the city budget, which is huge compared to the 0.5% sales tax increase. Wow. So that would like totally fund the city, like going forward, they wouldn't have to worry about it for probably several decades. Um, but again, I don't see that flying, um, especially with existing homeowners, like they wouldn't really want to increase their existing property taxes because they might actually even be priced out of the city if it's significant enough. Um, that's, the other, that's, the other, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, sorry, I was going to just really quick jump in. Um, the, uh, last year's budget, uh, mm-hmm. property, ta- the split between property tax and sales tax as percentage of revenue, property tax was 35.2% the biggest portion of revenue for the city sales tax was 27.24%, the second biggest, which was much bigger than any other revenue category um, mm-hmm. that the city had. So yeah. I just wanted to paint that backdrop um, as you continue. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was just going to mention really briefly is there's something called a transfer tax, which I didn't really know about, um, but I guess it makes intuitive sense. Think of it like a sales property tax. Um, pretty much when you're transferring your property from one person to another, the local government can come in and tax that sale itself. Um, and that would really only affect the new buyers or sellers. Um, so people who just live in the city of Folsom won't really be touched by it. That's kind of more of a middle ground in my 
I, in my mind, because it can be something that the city can sell better, especially with a lot of the um, new people coming into the city. So there's not as much like people moving out. Um, now, one thing I did find that was interesting in my research um, is it kind of de depends on the sale, like who's paying that tax, because you can agree um, during the point where you're buying a house from somebody who owns an existing home that the buyer pays it or the seller pays it. Um, and it really is just up to who wants to bear that burden, um, part of the negotiation process. So that one I find interesting, but I haven't heard anything discussed at the city council level about it. So I'm not sure if they would consider something like it. Um, but it, if it is something that can generate more revenue than a sales tax, um, perhaps it's more feasible because the people of Folsom will say, Hey, I'm not affected by it. It's going to be the new people. Hmm. You said that was the real, the transfer tax you said that was? Yes. Transfer I think, tax. I think in, uh, the city's budget um, for last year had a, I think this might be the same thing. They have a real property transfer as a revenue it might be, category. It might be what they call it. Yeah. It was like 0.88%. So relatively small portion of the budget right now. So potential, mm -hmm. you know, for opportunity. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I wonder my, I guess, skepticism would be that these types of transfers happen so infrequently. I mean, maybe on the scale of Folsom, they happen a few dozen times, maybe a few hundred times. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I, I wonder to what extent it can be counted on as a reliable source of uh, revenue. Yeah, I would only ever see that as something like a midterm solution because while city, the city of Folsom is currently growing, it probably won't stay like that forever. So yeah. if we reach a period of stagnation or even decline like the rest of the state, then that effectively is not going to be helpful for the city. Gotcha. That, yeah. that makes sense. That definitely uh, does. I know. Uh, uh, I, oh, oh, go ahead, Dervish. No, you, all you, man. Oh, I, I was just going to say, Um, I, I know uh, we talked about kind of politics earlier. So I'm mm -hmm. kind of curious, Justin, from, from your perspective, how do elections and the kind of uh, political optics of said elections way into this uh, debate about uh, structural deficit. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that I focused on was um, trying to find um, evidence that had to do with, like, does an incumbent who's running for re-election want to propose and support a tax increase on their constituents? Um, there's a couple of different articles I looked at for this, which we'll, we'll share at some point. Um, but the, uh, the punchline is basically that if you're an incumbent, you're probably you're less likely to want to increase taxes on the people that you want to vote for you. Because generally speaking, increasing taxes are not popular. You don't want to be seen as the bad guy. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a, a definitely an electoral incentive there to not support something like that. Um, to, to the extent that in the city council is multiple people, um, you can kind of be a free rider, so to speak, if you're running for re-election by being the person who opposes the tax, if the rest of the city council is for it. But at the same time, if you get enough of people like that, then you give enough ground that you're not having the United City um, pushing for something that you see as a dire need and therefore would weaken the like um, chances of like the average voter wanting to vote for it. Um, so I think that, um, oh, and I do have the, uh, the statistic here from earlier. The last time there was a sales tax increase um, vote, it was in 2018, and the vote was a 71% to 29% um, in favor of no. <laughs> Um, to give you an idea. And then uh, the other thing I found in my research for this question um, was that um, in city councils with um, districts such as Folsom has and has just transitioned to, um, there's an additional incentive not to increase your sales tax um, because 
there is going to be pressing need um, for that sales tax increase in places such as my district, the Folsom Plan area. So my district would benefit disproportionately from an increase in sales tax revenue um, for the reasons that I discussed earlier about potential cuts. Um, so you create an incentive for some city council members to really be the champions um, and need it more um, at the expense of potentially other districts. Yeah, that's that, wow, that's such a fascinating dynamic. I, I didn't even think about that, but mm -hmm. that, that makes total sense. Of like, of course, the people who are having new stuff built around them would have mm -hmm. an incentive to say, like, yeah, of course I want these increases because you know we're just a fraction of the area of Folsom, but we, we stand yeah. to gain the most in terms of new amenities and services mm -hmm. and things like that. So exactly. Okay. That is really interesting. Yeah. Fascinating point. Do you think, I guess, is the, um, is this a byproduct of district-based elections to some extent? Oh, also, I, I guess, um, mm -hmm. would the Folsom Plan area's vote sort of be diluted with the fact that they are just part of District 5 still, like they're not their own voting district yet? Um, diluted in what sense? Um, meaning like their vote, you know, they're not represented by like one whole council member, essentially. Uh, you know, there's like other constituents in the uh, kind of previously developed parts of Folsom that uh, that council member is also kind of, you know, in is beholden to to some extent. So, for example, like the Empire mm -hmm. Ranch or like Russell Ranch area, I, I believe those um, folks have the same council member as the Folsom Plan area. I think so. So, you know, would it be the case that some people in the uh, Empire Ranch, Folsom or Russell Ranch area would say, hey, we don't want this increase because you know we're we're bearing some of that burden and stuff around us is is all developed so we have like no incentive whereas the people in the Folsom plan area might say hey we do want it and those two things kind of cancel out i guess um, yeah i think that's definitely true um especially um even further to your point people on that side of 50 are more likely to be in opposition to increasing services for this side of 50 because that would be more traffic and that's been something that we've heard complain about like at city council meetings and other public meetings. Um, so that's entirely possible. And I think that's a good point um, with regards to like the electoral politics of our own city council member that represents both sides of the district. Um, honestly, I think that really just depends on the calculation that the city council member makes because they can say, hey, like so much of my district now is coming in and growing on this side. So I feel like electorally or just personally, I should align more on this side of the issue. Or if there's someone who's not even seeking re-election and they just like they live in the other side of the district, they might just say, hey, like I personally feel this way. So even though I see a lot of the people in this district needing these increased services, um, it's not something I agree with. So like that that much is very much a gray area. And I, I think that was a good point of nuance to bring up. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. These are all like such fascinating dynamics. And, and mm -hmm. honestly, yeah, thanks for bringing it up. Um, yeah. I'm kind of curious whether, um, yeah, I don't know. Anything else you wanted to add to that? Or are there any other um, kind of aspects of the structural deficit that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, um, one thing that I would like to kind of pivot to is just a little bit like on how the influence of the state impacts um, the city's finances. Um, that's one of the big relationships that has changed a lot in the history of California. Like how does taxation affect the state versus the city versus the county? Um, there's a lot of back and forth in state funds. Um, I think property taxes are a good example where um, property taxes used to be before Prop 13, which passed in the 70s, um, going to local school districts until Prop 13 passed and then um, 
there was also some other propositions that also affected this recently, um, where now that revenue pretty much goes to the state. And that state then redistributes that rev revenue back to local counties. Um, so there's a lot of back and forth with that funds. Um, the base property tax rate is what that money is referring to, um, not really counting the potential increases that we talked about at the local level. Um, there's also a lot of other support that the state gives local cities. Um, sometimes they'll come in and take over cities too, which is something that we've heard the city council talk about a little bit with regards to housing projects. Um, I don't see that happening in the city of Folsom because the city council has been very, uh, very much cognizant of that um, risk and they've approved affordable housing projects and are still continuing to amend and approve affordable housing projects. Um, with regards to the financial well-being of the state, um, currently the LAO, the Legislative Analyst Office, predicts somewhat stable revenue at the state level, even though we're also in a deficit there. Um, it, as far as I can tell from the different analysis and historic trends in the state budget, like any money that comes from the state to support cities isn't likely to be threatened. Um, there's one interesting exception that's a little bit contentious right now, um, especially as you look into um, some of the CalMatters articles that have come out recently. Um, there was a big initiative from um, the governor to uh, support local homeless issues, which is something that people in Folsom are passionate about, even though the data shows that we don't have a huge homeless problem relative to surrounding areas in the region. Um, that being said, um, because of some like revenue shortfalls, uh, that fund had to get cut. Uh, or at least was cut beyond um, what the asking was from um, the League of California Cities. Um, so there's a little bit of tension on that specific issue, but I don't think that'll affect the overall well-being of the city. It might just be like a knock-on effect for if the city does have any efforts to address its own homelessness issue, there might be less funding for it. Yeah. Um, by and large, um, I think the Public Policy Institute of California summed it up best um, in the research that cities are really just dependent on their own revenues. Um, and um, especially since Prop 13, um, it's really been that property taxes and sales taxes, um, with some other exceptions. And then I think uh, the strings attached where we are paying the state, like for the CalPERS contribution, um, those are things that aren't really negotiable for the city. Interesting. And I guess off the top of your head, do, do you know that if uh, someone inherits a property from mm -hmm. someone who fell under Prop 13, that mm -hmm. do they get those same Prop 13 benefits or is it only for the per the original purchaser of that property? So my understanding, limited legally, so asterisk on my opinion, is it depends on how they get the property. Hmm. Because if it's a standard, like, transfer in my will like after i die to my children or whoever then they will get that new assessed property tax rate if it's through certain legal i don't want to call them maneuvers because that might have a connotation to it but through like a trust or something like yeah like, like, a, like a living trust yeah like like a, i think that's a way to get around it yeah i see so you you yeah. you bought the property you put it under a living trust while mm -hmm. like the prop 13 was still in effect that Prop 13 benefit kind of carries over this. This seems like very analogous to like salt tax or like the carried interest loophole, mm -hmm. frankly, but you know, discussion for another day. Um, and so the idea being that, uh, yeah, th those living trusts can kind of live in perpetuity and that there's, mm -hmm. there's kind of no sunsetting of that benefit on that property, unless 
Yeah. And for whatever reason, it gets sold out of that trust or, you know, goes mm -hmm. uh, uh, like there's some kind of bankruptcy, a bank claims it, they sell mm -hmm. it off. Like that sort of breaks the chain of, of custody. Um, yeah. And the yeah. only way I think I see that changing is if there was to be another state proposition process, um, which arguable whether there's an appetite for that but we're getting a little too beyond the city of Folsom to speculate on that um so I will I will just ask you then Darvesh um do you think there's anything like locally that is interesting now that we talked about the state um yeah I, I guess maybe one question I have locally is I I, mm -hmm. I honestly wonder if we are not getting as much property tax revenue as we would suspect given the property mm -hmm. tax rate if there are people who are benefiting from Prop 13. You know, mm -hmm. essentially the uh, property tax increases are putting a disproportionate burden on new home buyers and new housing prices uh, kind of at the expense. Of, it, it's essentially like this kind of like free equity transfer to the people who have benefited from Prop 13. Because essentially mm -hmm. like every new house that has to be sold, they do not get the benefits of Prop 13. So it's like they have to pay I guess a larger portion of their income. I mean, you know, it's like pretty crazy. I, you know, across the street from where I live, there's like uh, the Lakeview Estates. And I mean, some of those homes have sold for like, it's like a quarter acre and sold for like $2 million or something like that. $20,000 a year. And and moreover, wow. it's $20,000 of post-tax income. Wow. Right? Because like you, you don't get any, um, right? It's, it's like after your federal income tax, state income mm -hmm. tax, and then you have to pay your property tax. And there's no, like, as far as I know, there's no like kind of big write-offs or anything like that. So it's like, yeah. that's just, and moreover, there's, um, uh, at least from talking to my parents, uh, you essentially pay it, at, at most you can pay it in halves. So essentially, which, which is kind of odd because then, you know, at any point in time, you have to have like a, a pretty large sum of money just sort of sitting there waiting for you to pay that amount. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, you know, for a $2 million house, that's like, yeah, easily about uh -huh. $20,000. So you're looking at $10,000 every six months. I mean, that's uh -huh. like a huge chunk of change to just be, you know, laying in a checking account, doing nothing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I can't even imagine a mortgage on something like that. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, God, especially no. at these rates. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I just, maybe we should dig deeper in a future episode into to Prop 13, because I think it it is both contentious, because I, I sort of understand the people who benefit from it, you know, especially if you're older, you, um, you know, maybe you're only living on Social Security. And so it's just fiscally impossible for you to move anywhere. Because, you know, you have kind of gained that equity value, but most of it has been taxed away uh, in some form or another. And every mm -hmm. other property is like commensurately increased. And, you know, maybe your cost of living adjustments in Social Security yeah. have just not kept up. Maybe they've kept up pace with the national average. But, you know, as we know, California mm -hmm. is far above the national average in many ways um, for both ill and bad, you know, for both mm -hmm. ill and good. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. That's the only thought I had. There were, um, I know, Darvish, you, you had also looked at some of, like, you were looking into some data about, like, Folsom versus, like, the surrounding area, like, regionally, like, the Sacramento, Roseville, kind of Arden Arcade area. Do, do you have any, like, um, any sort of, like, comments or, or information to kind of add to this discussion about that? Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, I, I got a lot of charts, and I'll, I'll put it for the video listeners, but um, for audio listeners, I'll, again, I'll just kind of describe as best I can, and I'll try to use years to you know make the point a bit more specific. Um, essentially, there's uh, this resource called uh, FRED, which is made by the uh, St. Louis Federal Reserve. So essentially, you know, there, there's uh, the kind of National Federal Reserve. There, I mean, the, what, what they do is like a whole uh, can of worms unto itself, but there's also like these regional uh, federal reserve agencies. So, you know, there's one in kind of like 
I think, you know, kind of like the northern United States, like near Michigan, Minnesota, that kind of area. There's like St. Louis, there's one in the south. I think there's one in San Francisco. So, you know, they, they all kind of like keep track of, of regional data. Uh, but the St. Louis one has, you know, this really nice web portal where they let you export a bunch of figures and, and get like really, really granular uh, data. And so uh, they fortunately had some uh, interesting data for the uh, either the Sacramento-Roseville Arden Arcade area or the Sacramento-Roseville Folsom area. So this is like hyper local data. Uh, I mean, pretty much as local as you can get other than the city itself. Um, and I try to get some data from the city, but it's like very opaque. So for example, like I try to get the number of permits issued uh, by the city, but they always leave it in like one bullet point, like kind of in the middle. And they always, they always phrase it in the same way, which is that we issued over X many permits, but th the number is always like very specific. It's always like we issued over 3,370 permits or something like that. And it's kind of like, okay, like, is it 3,371? Is it 3,300 or 3,379? Like, like where, where in this range uh, does it fall? So that, that's like not as granular as I would like. Um, but a, a couple of interesting things. So uh, one measure that the Fed tracks is called uh, regional price parities, which is essentially like uh, how, what are the cost of goods and services relative to the national average? So essentially, you know, if you, uh, you know, I guess maybe the most salient example would be like, let's take the average price of like a gallon of milk across the US. You know, what is the average price of milk in the Sacramento, Roseville, Arden, Arcadia area for that gallon of milk in general? Uh, and one of the very interesting things is that in um, around 2016, uh, California was at pretty much at parity with the national average. So uh, essentially it's measured on a scale from like 100 and then anything below 100, you're kind of like below average. Anything above 100, you're sort of above average. And so, uh, yeah, around 2016, we were almost exactly at average. And then um, in 2018, so not, not even just two years later, we were at uh, 109. So essentially our prices were about 9% higher than the national average for this like hyper specific area. So, you know, like with these kind of figures, usually people discount it by saying like, oh, well, you didn't control for like the Bay area or you didn't control for LA or like San Diego or any of these other like big kind of metropolitan areas. So this figure is skewed, but you know, even in our like relatively affordable uh, kind of mid-sized city in California, uh, you know, we were paying 9% above the national average, which is like crazy. And it, it has gone down like a little bit over the years, but uh, it still stayed uh, above the average. So I think as of 2021, it was about uh, 107. So about 7% above the national average. That's really interesting too, because um, like that's right around the same time that the uh, um, sales tax tapered. So like consumers exactly. largely would not have like felt much of a difference in like the total total price of the goods themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Like prices kept rising, kept rising. And even though sales tax itself tapers off, consumers are still paying more and more that I mean, I think that's something to consider, you know, especially if, you know, a sales tax increase comes back onto the table, right? Consumers probably have not felt an ease of like the cost of like goods in gosh, a long time, you know, and so I think, uh, no, that that's really interesting. Yeah. Oh, really it could also suggest, I, I think another hypothesis that I had is that, um, you know, that's kind of proportional to how the volume of money that consumers spend. So essentially, as the mm -hmm. regional price parity increases, people just buy like less stuff. Or, you know, yeah. essentially, you know, a lot of that might be like discretionary spending and things like that. And so that like those things get kind of cut. And so it, it, it kind of reaches this equilibrium on its own. So maybe the sales tax flattening that we've seen is, is a, a function of, you know, the fact that 
even though consumers don't know, you know, they don't check like the national price on average, they sort of have a collective intuition about these things and and those things ebb and flow. So that was kind of interesting. Um, the other thing that was kind of interesting is uh, the real per capita personal income for the Sacramento, Roseville, Arden, Arcade area. So this is quite interesting because uh, I I actually forget exactly how real per capita personal income is, is calculated. I think it's just like essentially like cost of living, you know, it's like income minus cost of living more or less. Uh, you know, so if like the, if your income rises faster than your cost of living, then like the real per capita income should increase. And also since this is like per capita, it, it gives like a bit of a better measure rather than like total GDP, which could be influenced by uh, like commercial activities or, you know, kind of large capital outlays that are, you know, made by like cities and counties and governments and things like that. Um, and so what was interesting about that is like from 2016 to 2018, uh, the real per capita personal income actually dropped in California. And so it was increasing from 2009 uh, all the way up to 2016. From 2016 to 2018, it dropped. And then from 2018 onwards, it has been increasing. Um, so this kind of supports the hypothesis I was talking about earlier, but not completely, because the sales tax flattening that we've seen is rather consistent. So if this was truly like the only factor, then you know we, we would have seen essentially the sales tax you know, kind of taper off and then like climb back up again. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, a lot of stuff kind of changed in 2016, like economically, even though we would not mm -hmm. associate that time as like an economic downturn or like a recession in, in a clear way. Um, That's really interesting. And I'll just like throw this tiny little point in there as well. In 2019, um, the like the full load uh, freight or full truckload freight market saw one of the worst like recessionary periods. And it, it has yeah. like different recessionary periods like detached from, you know, not necessarily always detached. They usually do follow like major economic recessionaries period. Like we're in one right now, but mm -hmm. 2019 was a very specific one, right? And if you see the cost of goods rising dramatically, you know, I mean, this is obviously, we're looking at a small subsample, this region, right, in California. Um, if we were to find supporting evidence that the cost of goods was rising elsewhere, right, maybe you get backed up inventories, and that could mean less like truckload, you know, freight as well. So I just think that's interesting, but it, it kind of speaks to, there are are and worse maybe larger economic factors playing into that 2016 2017 2018 um you know that period in the lower lowering of that like per capita in um household income yeah yeah exactly um the other uh data that i found that was quite interesting was the um the all transactions house price index for sacramento roseville folsom um so basically it obviously took a sharp decline <laughs> in 2008 um but then it has risen quite quickly uh, over the last few years. It's kind of hard to quantify it, but essentially like the slope of the line seems uh, pretty much about the same as between 2005 to 2008, or sorry, between kind of the year 2001 up to 2008, it was a very sharp increase and then obviously it crashed. Uh, and that has been about the same rate of increase that we've seen uh, from around 2012 onwards. So this could suggest that, you know, literally one of the largest kind of expenditures that people have housing uh, is going up in value. And then uh, your property taxes kind of go up commensurately, even if you're, and you're, if your real per capita income is going down. So like all these forces in conjunction might be um, uh, kind of working together. The other interesting thing was the uh, rental vacancy rate for California. So this is a bit broader. I, I, unfortunately, I couldn't get it at the um, kind of Folsom, Roseville, you know, Arden Arcade area. Uh, but actually since uh, 2016, um, rental vacancy rates in California have been at an all-time low. And at, at a statewide level, they're hovering around 4%. Uh, 
And just to give you some context, um, basically in the 90s, uh, the vacancy rates range anywhere from about 6%, uh, you know, down to, I mean, at, at its lowest point, it was 4%, but it was never any lower than that. Uh, and then from around 2001 to uh, 2009, 2008, the uh, vacancy rate kind of increased quite a bit from uh, 4% up to uh, about 8%. So we're sitting at pretty historic lows as far as uh, rental vacancy rates. So it suggests that, you know, not for those that uh, aren't purchasing a house or paying property taxes, the alternatives to rent. But if the kind of vacancy rate is low, to me, that suggests that at kind of as a corollary, uh, that prices have to remain high. If the competition for uh, available rental locations is, you know, if it is quite competitive, then that is naturally going to bid the prices up. Whereas if the vacancy rate was high, then, you know, landlords have an incentive to lower their price to attract more uh, potential renters. So that was an interesting dynamic. And then the very last one I'll show, which is like, frankly, the most shocking to me, is that the uh, new private housing structures authorized by building permits for the Sacramento, Roseville, Folsom area is still quite low. So uh, it, it's kind of hard to explain the chart, but essentially we, we saw boom uh, right before the uh, 08 financial crisis in terms of new housing search, which kind of makes sense. You know, everyone was buying houses, credit was very available. And so it all kind of just like went into houses. Uh, but then it took a very, very sharp decline. And essentially, we're building uh, housing at a rate that's the same as we were building housing in about 1996 or 1998. So despite us having, you know, probably several million more people in the state, and definitely way more people in the Folsom area or the Sacramento area, we're actually building housing at a very, very slow rate, relative to the demand that we're seeing. So, you know, it's a combination of stuff is getting more expensive, uh, per capita income is going down. Uh, housing prices are very high. Uh, the uh, rental rates, rental vacancy rates are kind of low. And then the new housing coming online is also very slow. So th those are the kind of five or so factors that I found at a somewhat local level that feel like they could explain some of mm -hmm. the uh, sales tax flattening that we've seen. Essentially, more of your income is allocated towards your housing expenses than less is going to be available for discretionary spending and things that could contribute to sales tax, or at least that's my hypothesis based on the uh, kind of figures I showed. And, and again, for the video listeners, I'll, you know, I will kind of have them in the, in the background. Uh, we'll also link to them uh, because Fred, uh, which is the name of the site, uh, provides kind of like these nice URLs. So you can check them out for yourself and kind of zoom into any time point that you want. Uh, that's super interesting. I have a follow-up actually, like, I don't know if this was in the scope of your research, but for that last um, piece of data that you shared with us, do you know if there's been any trends at the types of new housing that's been coming online? Like, has it been single family homes? Has it been more mixed use? Um, I don't know if you looked into that. I actually, I, I don't know, because I, I was looking for that level of granularity. Um, mm -hmm. I think there was maybe a step for single family homes, but I, I felt like the uh, house, I, but I think that wasn't as local. So I ended up settling for the uh, all transactions house price index because um, that seemed like, you know, mostly represented by single family homes, uh, at mm -hmm. least kind of at an aggregate level. Um, but I know, oh, actually, one thing I did find during my research of the uh, permits that were approved is that, um, so in, yeah, so basically from, uh, I'll, I'll basically start at the beginning of the fiscal year. So in 2011, there were about, there are 3,300 permits issued. 2012, there were about 3,300. Uh, skipping a few years, so 2015, there were about, um, or sorry, 2016, there were about 5,200 permits. And then ever since 2016, uh, the number of permits issued has actually been in decline. So mm -hmm. then in 2017, there were only 4,800. 
2018 had a slight uptick, 4950. But then mm -hmm. in 2019, 2020, there were only 3,552 uh, building permits issued. So there's, I don't know, yeah, kind of this like opposite effect. Like demand is going up, number of permits issued is going down. Um, yeah. Is there any cause or explanation for that? Like, do we know why like building like a, a home construction is like not increased substantially? I think the, and, and to be fair, this is separating the research now from uh, stuff that I've kind of like anecdotally read. So, yeah. uh, you know, feel free to fact check me on this. But essentially the um, kind of leading theory that I've heard is that the uh, 2008 crisis was bad enough to where for several years, it was actually unprofitable for developers to build at all. Essentially, like the cost of the um, materials and labor that they would put into building a home. Uh, would not even allow them to break even on that home. And essentially, so for, for several years, there was essentially like no home building. And because mm -hmm. the lead times on homes are so long, you know, there's a ton of permitting, um, even even just something like pouring a foundation. I mean, it takes like, you know, could take like a month or several months in some cases. There's a lot of inspections that need to happen. Um, so because the lead times on a lot of these things are long and there was such a dearth uh, in that time period, the, I guess, conventional wisdom is that a lot of that, a lot of those companies and contractors went uh, bankrupt or, you know, decided to do something else. Um, and so there's there kind of a dearth of uh, both labor and materials and supply, and that kind of percolated throughout the supply chain. And ever since then, it's been very, very difficult to get that momentum ramped back up again. Um, it, it, that, that's sort of the, the leading hypothesis as far as I know and what I've read. And it seems to kind of generally make sense, um, which mm -hmm. is that everyone is ultimately motivated by their own incentives, right? Like, I, I mean, uh, I, I know a lot of people will probably think of like real estate developers as like, you know, these kind of money grubbing, like greedy people. And they're, they're just trying to like squeeze out every dollar. But, you know, ultimately, like a lot of these things might be built by general contractors and, you know, subcontractors and sub subcontractors. And so they're probably looking at it from their own incentive of like, hey, I could be making $80 an hour being a plumber. Like, why would I do uh, roofing for uh, housing? You know, so, uh, something like, I mean, I'm just, that's just like a hypothetical, but um, you could kind of imagine this dynamic playing out. Uh, at an individual level and sort of percolating. Definitely. No, appreciate appreciate that that insight. I think that's, I mean, that's a lot of, it's on a lot of people's minds. Um, and it, as we've clearly outlined, there is there is like a direct correlation between housing development and Folsom, given like, especially the proportion of property tax for the city's revenue, you know, and how, you know, that plays into like the city getting out of the structural deficit. So, um well, I, I wanted to, but thank you both. Like, this is fantastic research. Um, this is really, really fun to like dive into really deep. And I hope this like reaches the right audience. Um, I want to like open up the floor for like any additional thoughts, questions, anything we might ask, you know, maybe even, even directly to like the city council, stuff like that. Let's, you know, kind of open the floor a little bit. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. I, I, we've alluded to it several times, but essentially there's this, uh, very strong reticence to see the elephant in the room, which is that half the budget is taken up by two things. And if those two things are constantly off the table, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of like shuffling, uh, chairs on the Titanic you know, kind of thing. It's like, it's like the, the, the ship is sinking. Like, this is not the, mm -hmm. uh, the, the sort of thing to be. And, you know, for context, uh, the thing that Justin mentioned, like the IT fund, uh, yeah, for, for context, those $50,000. So th this is like the level of um, yeah. things that are being, I mean, we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, 
funds that we can reallocate from one thing to another. And I mean, no, no slight to the you know IT fund either. It's like it, it was sort of like a discretionary thing and, a, and like a proactive thing. So I, I don't like blame the city council for for taking that money. It, it, it didn't seem like ill-advised as far as I could tell. And the city manager seemed, you know, okay with it as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just, I don't know what it will take for people to reconsider how much uh, money we're spending on police and firefighting. Uh, unfortunately, there are two things where it's very hard to measure. There's actually a very good book called Bureaucracy, and it um, it, it classifies uh, police and as firefighters adjacently as uh, uh, what are called like coping agencies. And so a coping agency is one where you cannot measure the inputs, nor can you measure the outputs. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so like uh, schools would be another example of this. It, it's like hard to measure the outcomes of students because you don't know what they're going to be like, like 10, 15 years down the line. Mm -hmm. And you can't really measure the input of the teacher because everyone teaches in different ways. You know, different students have different needs, like all this kind of stuff. So yeah, it feels like we're kind of in this like between a rock and a hard place with uh, the police and firefighters where it's essentially like, hey, you know, we need to be, uh, uh, we need to, do more about homelessness. We need to do more about crime, and it's going to keep ratcheting up until it just hits a wall. And I, I guess I just really don't know what happens at that point. Yeah, yeah. No, that's mm -hmm. that's a really really good point. Um, appreciate the, you know, appreciate that comment and that and that feedback. In Justin, did you have anything as well on your end? Yeah. Um. I think the big thing on my mind, especially since I focused on looking forward, is personally I see that there is going to be a tax hike on the ballot in the next five years. I think that's inevitability just based on the situation for the city. Um, so with that in mind, my my thoughts that I would ask at least maybe the current city council or people who are interested in city council in the future is given that this is probably gonna be what city council labels as its way out of the budget crisis. Um, what, what do they plan on doing to market for that? How committed are they to that idea? Well, do they have backup plans? Because I think these are all questions that even though it's kind of seeming like as far off in the future, need to be thought about now. Um, because if there's going to be an effective marketing campaign, you need as much time as possible on that, especially as circumstances change for the city. Um, being able to like really like tangibly like um, give people a sense of what this is going to affect is going to be crucial for any sort of, you know, super consequential vote. Yeah, uh, open invite to any of the city council members to come to the pod uh, mm -hmm. and explain your position. Uh, we would be glad to have you, I mean, even if you disagree with us on mm -hmm. you know anything that we've said, any of the analysis that we've done. Um, you know, we we would love to hear your thoughts. So, uh, I mean, I, I sort of doubt this is reaching that level, but you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. uh, at some point, at some point, yeah. hey, you know, definitely. Mm -hmm. Well, we we openly invite that. I feel like going forward because mm -hmm. you know that's it's kind of like that's kind of our whole thing. You know, like open discussion. Yeah. You know, supporting evidence. Um. Getting to getting to know all of these, you know, all, all of this uh this nuance a little bit better. Um, McLean, did you have any follow up questions? I did actually. I was oh. curious. Uh, this was actually coming out of I was researching about the that contract position that the city was considering. It was like the one year economic mm -hmm. development contract. Yeah. Um, it got me thinking about how the city, you know, because definitely I think that's a good idea to hire like a consultant for that, you know. Um because I think we should be aware and we should have like better knowledge on like the economic development of the city, but like, how does the city normally operate on it's like, you know, economic development? Like what are the normal levers of research that it pulls? Right. Mm -hmm. I know that they have a avail or um, like the availability for different 
you know, consultants to come in, conduct independent research. But what are those levers, you know, and would they ever consider having someone on staff that like does that research for them? Right. Maybe that's a long term investment for the city. Right. Mm -hmm. We hire this position and instead of paying consultants right at a higher rate per like, you know, man hour. Right. Um, we have someone on staff. So just something just something to think about, something I would love to kind of, you know, get into a little bit more um, if we ever have the chance. Yeah, I know. Awesome. Uh, I know, Justin, um, you probably have some uh, thoughts on this. I mean, I know it's somewhat related to the Chamber of Commerce and, and Choose Folsom mm -hmm. to some extent. Um, this is actually part of our interview with Sherry. Um, yeah, I, I guess it seems like historically, I mean, yeah, to, uh, TLDR, I guess the um, city has seemed to outsource a lot of this economic development activity to uh, the Chamber of Commerce, which is a nonprofit entity that's like not really affiliated with the city. I mean, it's kind of a misnomer that they are, I guess, uh, you know, because people hear Chamber of Commerce, they think like, oh, this is like, you know, the Senate or something. This is like the business Senate of mm -hmm. the city, uh, but it, it's like not really uh, connected in any legal way as far as I know. Uh, and then Choose Folsom is kind of this umbrella organization that covers um, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, I believe the, it's like the tourism uh, commission yeah and, and then the ted corp ted corp yeah which is like the something economic development uh, corporation mm -hmm. um so yeah it, it seems like there's been a kind of bifurcation where essentially the chamber and choose Folsom are more well connected to the uh, business leaders in the area and so they kind of like spur on economic economic development they lobby at the uh kind of state level for different different legislation they Kind of make their opinions heard during city council meetings you know they have presentations so on and so forth um so yeah i think historically that's how it's been done uh, as far as like measuring performance i mean I, I really can't say like how effective or ineffective they've been i i don't actually know of like an analogous entity in any neighboring areas uh but maybe that's something we look into in a future episode yeah, yeah definitely definitely that's a great follow-up um something we'll consider oh awesome well i uh that's I think that's a, that kind of wraps up our discussion on the structural deficit. Th again, thank you guys for all of the contributions and and talking through all this. Um, super super fun. I hope everybody enjoyed you know listening to this uh, this deep dive today. We would love to do more of these like special episodes where we deep dive one subject, you know, um, in place of or you know in addition to our normal cadence of city council meetings, um, which you should you know be excited to see soon as the city council has you know uh, resumed its session after the one the one. Um, week of recess so thanks again everyone for tuning in uh, we look forward to discussing more um, and we'll see you next time all right see you guys